0: ask you to turn to page 59 in your Shed Bible, and I'm going to read this morning from Exodus 8, verse 10b. And Moses replied, it will be as you say, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. The word of the Lord. So in my house recently, we've been really into sea shanties. Alright, I'm, I'm, lo- I'm on a learning curve here, right? A shanty is not a shack by the sea, sure. But it, it's an old word that comes from the word chant or chanty. Anybody listen to some sea shanties lately? Right? Up on the screen we got this guy named Nathan Evans. My kids are big into him. Anybody? Cool. All right. Yes, I see it, I see the hand. So Nathan Evans is a Scottish singer who has revived the sea shanty, the old rhythmic maritime chant that would be sung by a community as they're hauling in the ships or as the the sailors were working aboard. They have a kind of a rhythm to them that just drives you forward and they're pretty upbeat, let me tell you. Now one of my favorites came on the album as my kids are only used to on-demand music, they will never know, the radio. And on comes this song, leave her, Johnny, leave her. And I was taken back to my childhood when the first true folk singer, the Canadian Stan Rogers, sang this song. If you haven't heard of Stan, you should. He's incredible, and he sang this song Leave her, Johnny, leave her. And it was somewhere inside of me, and I remembered every single word, because this is a song that is not about leaving a woman or a lover, but about leaving a ship. This song is about 150 to 200 years old, as best we can tell, and that Johnny, the sailor, represents all sailors who, upon reaching shore, Some sailors would have this condition where they, as much as they knew they wanted to be free of their work and get to dry land and clean clothes and rest, would not be able to leave the ship. It's as if their sailor identity of work superseded their desire for actual freedom and rest, no matter how bad the life on the ship was. And this chorus, Leave her, Johnny, Lever," is repeated first by one caller, one singer, and then by more and more until the whole community joins in the chorus begging the sailor to leave the ship, reminding the sailor of how bad it was with lyrics like this. The winds were foul and the work was hard. Leave her, Johnny, leave her. It was rotten beef and weevily bread. Leave her, Johnny, leave her. You'd eat it or you would starve to death. The skipper was bad, but the mate was worse. They would strike you down with a curse. Leave her, Johnny, leave her. And then the whole uh, community would join in this final chorus. Leave her, Johnny, leave her. For the voyage is done and the winds won't blow. Leave her, Johnny, leave her. So, sometimes we have a hard time leaving things that are actually killing us, don't we? We, like the sailor, would rather cling to a mixed bag of pain and predictability than actually move into rest and freedom. And somehow this song survives because it tends to be a rhythm of all of our lives, not just the dock workers. Have a hard time leaving something that we all know is so bad, and yet we know it, so we stay with it. Enter the book of Exodus. We've been walking through the Old Testament this summer, the Old Testament mixtape We've hit Genesis, we've hit some prophets, some writings, some Song of Songs, even back to the Psalms and the Proverbs, but there is this core book of the Torah, of those first five books of the Bible. It is, uh, in the Pentateuch, it is a beautiful, profound story, the Exodus, or the book of Exodus. It's the second book of the whole Bible. It's been made famous uh, in story and in film, Prince of Egypt, or maybe you grew up with Charlton Heston holding those commandments from his cold, dead hands in the Ten Commandments movie, and this is a narrative that gives shape to the whole nation of Israel. This whole book is shaped forevermore by this story. It is a core narrative, and I truly encourage you to read it. I actually sat down and read it over the past couple weeks. It is mind-blowing. I've done all the things. Bible in a year, spent lots of money on grad school to go to seminary. I don't know if I ever read the whole thing. It is marvelous. And so I won't do it justice in the next few minutes, but I really encourage you to read it. It is profound and nuanced. And it begins with the story of Joseph You know, the guy with the technicolor dream coat leaves off. He goes to Egypt because there's a famine in the land, and his brothers eventually follow him. They're not supposed to stay there, but they do. It's hard to blame them. That's where the food is. That's where the Nile is. That's where the water is. And the text says in Exodus chapter 1 that they were very, or some translations, extremely fruitful and multiplied in the land of Egypt which they were foreigners in. And the text goes on to say that empire acts like empire. And the Egyptians began to murmur and mutter that these people are going to be too, there's going to be too many of them. They're going to take over our our labor force. They're going to take over our country and their customs are going to mix with ours and we can't have that. So they move them into slavery and into oppression out of fear and a sense of scarcity in the world, even though Egypt has abundance. And so the people of Israel for hundreds of years are enslaved, made to work and build monuments and temples to Egyptian gods. And eventually they are cursed again by Pharaoh and have to make make bricks without straw, a core ingredient. And their cry goes up before the Lord. God hears them and makes a plan, enacts a plan to call Moses, his cousin Aaron, to go and speak to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to get these people out of there. Now, this doesn't happen right away, does it? Right? There's a little back and forth. There's these things called plagues or plagues? Plogs. Plagues, plagues, which I think I get off at the dentist every year. But if you say that that way, bless you. But there are also plagues. And these are bad things. These are not happy things. How, how many of them are there in the book of Exodus? Ten. Now, this summer, we also challenged us, our congregation, to be good readers of Scripture, looking out for what is the Old Testament saying about God? Where is it inviting us into dynamic partnership with God? And the third one was the invitation to get curious. Here's a moment of curiosity. God's beloved is in captivity. God is all-powerful, strong, and mighty, creator of heaven and earth. And yet, it takes ten plagues to convince a human that they should cooperate with God. What's with that? It seems wildly inefficient. It seems destructive. It seems unnecessary. So so maybe let's wonder together why are there these 10 plagues? I think we often think of these plagues as God's good versus evil, this cosmic battle of power and showdown of, of God's shalom versus the evil empire. And yes, It is that too. But I wonder if, maybe just for this morning, we can think of the plagues as a testament or invitation to the Israelites. Where are they they situated for you in this story? For me, once the plagues start, it's like a battle that they're not even part of. When I read the story, and picture it in my mind. But I think that God is doing something to form the people of Israel for what's next. Speaking of formation, let me take a little time out here. Many of you have asked, hey, what's what's up with the formation school? This really, really neat nine-month holistic, immersive, spiritual formation journey where we've run over the last five years six different cohorts of people through, and it's been really a true gift to my life and ministry, and I think to our church as well it is taking a one-year sabbatical. We're gonna take a year off to learn and to grow, but most importantly, to offer a taste of the Formation School to our entire community, Mars Hill and beyond. So we're gonna be, uh, and I'm inviting you to the Formation School's public lecture series. This is something we are kicking off um, in just a few weeks. We are gonna have all of our directions represented, inward, outward, backward, forward, withward, upward, that, that we follow as a community, we're going to bring in one dynamic speaker to give a talk about what it means to be the church in light of that direction. We're going to have some conversation after that, and then also have some follow-up opportunities for anybody to engage. Maybe that's a book read, a service project, uh, some conversation groups. And so these are going to be available to everybody. They'll be kicking off September 19th. Uh, with Dr. Cherith Fee Nordling, uh, who's just a brilliant, engaging speaker and has a heart for the church. And what does it mean for us to move in the withward direction, to be the church together in light of how God is within God's self, in trinity, in mutuality, in self-giving. And so I would invite you, whoever you are, wherever you are in your faith journey, to come and be a part of these things. We know we're not just taking in knowledge, and so this is more than just a talk. But we're going to have some spiritual practices and follow ups to say, how does this work its way into who we are? Because how we're formed matters. In fact, God gives these 10 plagues partly to act as a counter formation to the Israelites who had been formed in the culture of Egypt for generation and generation, a culture of exploitation where the poor and the vulnerable are only valued for what they give to those above them in the food chain. They're formed by a cultural civic religion that holds up the political elite and the cultural priests as the ones to follow and look to. And this gets its hooks in them, and it has also got its hooks in us. So come, let's take a look together now and also in the future this year. These ten plagues, here they are on the screen, they are fascinating. Uh, we're not going to ask you to name them all, but here's, here's a little bit of what they are doing. This first one, well, I'll show you this before we go into the first one. These plagues, each of them, is a specific rebuttal and challenge and triumph over a particular Egyptian deity or cultural norm or, or idol in Egypt, It's as if God is communicating to Egypt, to Israel, and to the world thereafter to say, there is no one like me, as Lynn read for us. There is no one like our God. These other narratives will fall and fail, and God is exposing them as weak and empty through these particular plagues. One, the Nile, the lifeblood of Egypt turns to actual blood. The thing that is the the giver of life now brings death. The way that the Egyptians said this is our only source of hope and life, God reverses it and says, no, it is not life anymore. That is the power of Yahweh, the God of the Israelites of the Old Testament. And then again, near the end, right, we have the plague of darkness. Now, the most famous Egyptian god, I'm not an Egyptologist, I really like Indiana Jones, but that's about all I got, right? God of the sun in Egypt is who? Ra. One more time. Hey, that was good. Um, Ra, we all know this. And it was the case that the God of the sun of light, who brought forth the sun every morning— If Pharaoh did Pharaoh's job, Pharaoh was Ra's representative on earth and kept order in all of Egypt. So if Pharaoh and his priests would enact these particular rituals every day, the sun would rise, meaning that all the people were meant to see Pharaoh as the one who determines value and life. And if that sun rose after the, the ritual, Pharaoh must be all-powerful. Ra must be the God. But if the sun doesn't rise, the power structure is exposed and it is broken for all to see. That this petty ritual of a man in dress-up costume, yes, absolutely held power, but nothing compared to this God. For there is no one like this God. My particular favorite plague is that of hail and fire. You'll see that kind of bottom row on the left. Now, the translation is funny here. If you go back to the original Hebrew, it's as if the text is actually saying this, that hail fell and there was fire inside it. Yeah, I didn't do that in chemistry class. Like, that's not a thing. God is making an explicit challenge to the pantheon of Egyptian gods. There was a god of hail and snow and cold, and there was a god of fire, as you would imagine. And they could probably perform miracles, but nothing could show the power saying, I am the one God who can do immeasurably more than you can imagine, including take all of your powers and fuse them together as witness to the watching world It exposes the weakness of the Egyptian theological system, which upheld their culture of oppression and slavery. It's as if what God is doing is giving a visual testimony to convince, to convert, to reconvert Israel back to an actual belief that God can and will do something. Because these plagues are kind of for everybody at some level, right? We look at this, this is in the text at chapter 7, verse 5. God says, I will do these signs and wonders that the Egyptians might know that I am God. That's certainly one level of this thing. And then we have our teaching text here, and there's a little bit of a pivot. This is 8, verse 10. Moses replied, it will be as you say. That they may know that there was no one like our God. This they is plural. So it's not just a battle against Pharaoh and the empire. It's for everyone. And then this continues in Exodus chapter 10. That you, Israel, may tell your children and your grandchildren how I perform signs among them. That they may know that I am God. This text is a clear call back to the one all-powerful, all-loving God. I think my picture of the Exodus is that, well, the Israelites are over here, and they always just worshipped God, right? I'll tell you what, if I was in their shoes, there'd be some mad syncretism would be the word to say, you know what, I... I culturally I believe in this God but I also want to hedge my bets a bit I'm going to put a little offering in the Horus temple over here, maybe some with Ra, maybe there is something to this kind of God of the Nile business because my God isn't really working out right now and not just actual idolatry and other worship over the centuries that creeps in but also this idea that maybe, maybe the Egyptians are right I'm, I am only what I do and what I produce Maybe, maybe society is stratified and there are those with, with the privilege and preference of the gods and I am just down here. But I will, maybe I could do something to better myself. And you see the lies of the culture begin to come in and come in and come in. And in God's mercy, he's showing even through these plagues that God is the only one, the only way. It's as if these people need convincing, conversion, and reconversion. Because even after the plagues, the escape, the Red Sea rescue, when things kind of stall out in the wilderness, once they're free, they go back and they start to pine for the predictability of what they knew. We didn't have good food, but at least we had it would get struck down with a strike and a curse by those overseers, and they begin to build an Egyptian god altar in the form of a golden calf. And I'm sure there were those people in that community who were singing the song, leave her, Johnny, leave her, come away from the thing that's killing you. But it wasn't the dominant narrative because they were so enmeshed with the cultural scripts of Egypt that they didn't even know what to do with the freedom once they had it. They pined for the predictability of the things that were killing them. And so we can read Exodus, and I hope we do, on so many different levels. But it invites the question of you and I. What is it that we need to leave behind? What are the idols that we are clinging to? What can we not seem to let go of that is holding us back from the invitation to freedom and life in God? What might the Spirit be inviting you to release? We live in a culture, much like Egypt, that prizes addiction to certainty and control and security. And we begin to orient our lives, our hopes, and our finances around these things, that comfort and security is now our God. And I don't want us to let ourselves off the hook so easily, thinking, oh, I, don't, I don't give offerings at another temple, right? I, I, I come here, joy box. No, because it's not about that. Because worship is not just singing, it's the orientation of our heart our attention, and our affection. What are we going after? Every week, right before I come into this room, my phone happens to buzz my screen time alert, if it went down or up. Super convicting. I do that in the confession space we do earlier, right? I don't know why Apple does that. But the things I'm looking at, the things you are looking at, probably have your attention, your hope, in a way that actually has a hold on our hearts more than we'd like it to. With those of us who prize security and control, what does an invitation into the faith of the wilderness feel like? It's scary. Maybe for some of us a thing to let go of is something that is secret or hidden. It's It's a side relationship, another addiction. Pornography. The gossip, slander, gambling, moving money around, something that nobody else really knows about. What does it mean to let go of that, to move into something greater? We cling to these idols. Maybe, like me, you are truly really distracted by shiny things and fun things and ultimately comfort and convenience. Maybe the good life that we orient our hearts around has maybe pieces of the life God wants us to have but is not fully following God and listening to the voice of Jesus through the power of the Spirit. Maybe you fear scarcity and not having enough and so we compromise following Jesus for that. Even though it is Christ's who is the only one who gives abundance and peace. The exodus forces us to ask these questions. God is in the business of unmasking the powers, of breaking the lies that hold us, and putting before us, letting us enter enter into a story that forces us to come to grips with the things that we would almost rather hang on to even though they're hurting us. And so out of God's mercy, what is it that you need to leave behind today? What can't go into freedom with you? Like I said, we get curious about these stories. And one really troubling piece for me amongst others in this text is this final plague Uh, where Pharaoh's firstborn son dies. And as I'm working through this with our teaching team, a colleague of mine wonders, is that a result? Is it giving us a picture of Pharaoh's stubbornness and his inability to let go of his pride and idolatry? Is it trying to tell us that our children pay the price? for the strongholds we're not willing to address. That it's often the ones who love us the most or that we love the most who bear the cost of our idolatry, of the false narratives we live into. I don't know. But it did resonate enough to say the invitation is really serious. And it's not easy to leave the addiction of Egypt behind because we walk out these doors and we're there again. In fact, Egypt's found its way in in how we talk and dress and communicate, all these things. And so the hope then is not for us to strive for perfection but to surrender to the one who has secured it for us. Jesus Christ. We get this in, in chapter 13 of the Exodus, where God's people go out into the wilderness and they are free and they're fed. They have a feast. And we, friends, follow the one who says, I am the bread of life. Not you have to work for the bread, not you have to be the bread, not you got to earn it, be good enough for it. I am. And I am here for you, says Jesus Christ. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Jesus Christ, who is the new and the true and the final exodus, is available to you and I through the power of the Spirit, now and forever, so that we may leave behind, we may release what we have been holding on to, and come and be filled with Christ, the one who has set us free. The Lord be with you. Be with you. Let you lift up your hearts. Up Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. We Lord. So we pray. God is a good thing in all times, in all seasons of life. In the riches of the pasture land, in the scarcity of the desert, in the midst of idols we hold too dear, and in the freedom of your love. It is right to give thanks to you, for you have done the work to set us free. You have overcome the powers. And so you invite us to come and celebrate with you To be sustained by you, God Almighty, who deserves all attention and hope and praise and worship and forevermore be praised. For you are the one. And you are holy and good and you invite us in. And so God, would you send your spirit on this meal that we're about to eat. Would you make it unto us the communion of the body of Christ so that where we lack, we would be made whole. For what was once broken has brought life. And so, Spirit, would you move in us? Would you unclench our white knuckles from the idols and dreams and false hopes and lies and narratives that we have been living in? And would you fill us with freedom? That is only you. Would you heal us and make us one? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. And so it was this Jesus who sat with his disciples. And he broke bread before them. Saying, this is my body that is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after they'd eaten, Jesus takes the cup and he says, this is the new covenant. It's the new promise in my blood that is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink of it together in remembrance of me. And so we do. We come and receive what Christ has done for us and given us. We have a chance as a community to pray during this time. We have prayer walls around the room. We have candles you can light with a prayer. Know that a prayer that gets tucked in there will be be prayed for by our staff every week. We have folks who would love to pray with you in the back. Anybody with a your name tag on? Maybe it's just to name something that you can't seem to, to let go of yourself. Maybe it's something you've never told anybody before. You just need to say it out loud and be prayed for because you don't have the words to do yourself. That's what we want to do, our pastoral staff and our prayer team, to be with you in this journey to God's freedom and laying down that which burdens us. So let this time be a gift and know that there is no one like our God who has provided for us given us life and freedom and a story. And so we say these simple sentences to rehearse the mystery and the beauty of this story. And we say this together as we come to the table, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Come and take and eat, for all things are now ready.